Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to do something this morning that I've never done before, and that is preach two sermons in one service. Now, I confess that I have preached one sermon that's as long as two normal sermons, but I've never preached two sermons in one service before. Actually, what I'm going to do is finish the message that I began last Sunday morning and then begin another one. And I know that that would not serve me well in a preaching class, but I'm not in a preaching class this morning. And I think I can justify it by pointing out to you that these two sermons are connected, uh, that the, the latter one or the newer one that I will begin flows from the one that we began last week. Uh, they're connected in the sense that they're in the same chapter, they're about the same subject, and remember that I am attempting to expositionally preach through a book of the Bible, so it's not like I'm preaching one sermon from Second Peter and one from Leviticus this morning, okay? Our message last week, or my message last week, was why we can't trust all preachers. And then the message that I will begin after finishing it is the judgment of false preachers. So you see, they are connected. Uh, they're connected in chapter 2 of Second Peter, and they're connected by the subject of false preachers. And I would remind you that it's these false preachers who disseminate false knowledge of God, which fits within the overall theme of this letter, Second Peter, which is all about the knowledge of God. Well, in the midst of the letter, you have this whole chapter about false knowledge of God. Once more, I want to read the text that we began last week, verses 1 through 3 of Second Peter chapter 2. Follow along with me as I begin to read there. It says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers or preachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. I told you last Sunday morning that from this passage, I think we find three reasons why we can't trust all preachers. We covered the first two of those last week. Reason number one is we can't trust all preachers 
because of what some of them preach. And I took that from verse 1. You see, some preachers preach heresy. And heresy is false teaching or wrong doctrine. This would not simply be any error, or this would not simply be a matter of some preachers disagreeing with other preachers on matters of secondary importance. Heresy is much more more serious here. When I say that they preach, preach false teaching or wrong doctrine, I mean on issues of orthodoxy, they are wrong or they are false. They preach things that are contrary to those things that in themselves define Christianity. And to be outside of these things would put one both theologically and salvifically outside of the realm of Christianity. Verse 1 told us about these false preachers that they deny Jesus. They deny who He is. They might deny what He's done. They deny what He has said in His Word, and therefore what they're really denying is what the Bible is. They deny how He saves. They deny what He has commanded. As if there is no such thing as a Christian way of life. They reject the laws of God. They deny the return of Christ. And that's a big issue I've already told you in this second letter that Peter wrote. People who call themselves Christians while at the same time having rejected the notion that Jesus will come again, and when He comes again, that He will actually judge the world, including them. So reason number one is we can't trust all preachers because of what some of them preach. Reason number two, we can't trust all preachers because of how some of them live. And I took that from verse two. It said there that some preachers live in sensuality. That is, they live in sexual immorality. And what's worse, according to verse 2, is that then they lead and they teach others to do the same. And they do it with a version of the gospel, which really isn't the gospel at all, but nonetheless a version of the gospel that perverts grace, that cheapens faith, that rejects the law of God as if the law is now under the new covenant antiquated and there's again really no way to live as a Christian. Once more, reason number two is we can't trust all preachers because of how some of them live. Now that brings us to where we pick up today, to our finishing off this message that I began last Sunday, and it's reason number three. We can't trust all preachers because of why some of them preach. 
We can't trust all preachers because of why some of them preach. And I take this from verse 3, so I want you to look there with me again to the first part of verse 3. It says about these false teachers, preachers, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. We can't trust all preachers because some preachers preach because of greed. That is, they preach for money. They're in it for the money. And really here, the amount of money that they preach for isn't the issue. Because surely we understand that one could, comparatively speaking, get very little money for his or her preaching, and at the same time be preaching for the money. Well, certainly then this would be the case that those that actually make a killing doing it. I told you last week of the words, or I reminded you last week of the words of Jesus, where he said about these false prophets or preachers that we would recognize them by their fruits. The two most common fruits of false preachers are sexual immorality and illicit money. There's a connection that we see down through the years and certainly in our day between false preachers and sexual immorality and illicit money. And, and then there's a connection between the sexual immorality and the illicit money themselves. Once more, money isn't the problem or isn't the issue. Clearly in the Word of God, He has instructed that those who preach His Word are to earn their living by the preaching of His Word. So money isn't the problem, but motivation is. Motivation is the issue. In chapter 2 of Second Peter, later on in verse 15, it says about these false preachers, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor. Do you remember Balaam? Balaam is probably the most notorious false prophet in the entire Bible. And what made Balaam a false prophet is what we find at the end of verse 15 there when it says about him, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Balaam, like these false preachers, or these false preachers like Balaam, are preachers for hire. The letter of Jude, the book of Jude, is one that has very much in common with this section of Second Peter. And in Jude verse 11, it says, Woe to them, it's talking about false prophets, for they walked in the way of Cain, and they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Back in our passage this morning, or for this morning, verse 3, said about them that they will exploit you with false words. You know what the word exploit means, don't you? You see, these false preachers don't want to feed the sheep, 
They want to fleece the sheep. They don't want to protect the sheep. They want to prey on the sheep. They don't preach for the glory of God. They preach for their own glory. And from this passage, the thing that should stand out in our mind is that these false preachers will say whatever makes people pay. I think you can remember that. They will say whatever makes people pay. So if what makes people pay is telling people that they're wonderful, they'll say it. If what makes people pay is telling them positive things, they'll say it. If what keeps people from paying is talking about sin and hell and judgment and personal responsibility, then they won't say those things. Because you see, that doesn't make people pay. If what makes people pay is telling them that God wants every one of them to be fabulously wealthy, they will tell them that. If what makes them pay is giving them a formula to get in on the wealth-making scheme of God, they will tell them that. If what makes people pay, even when they don't have money to pay, is telling them that they, the false preacher, has the power to heal their physical illnesses and the serious illnesses of their close family members and friends, they will even say those things knowing that they're lying straight through their teeth. Because false preachers will say whatever makes people pay. In verse 14 here of chapter 2, it says about them that they are trained in greed. Or one way to translate that is that they are experts in greed. That's why so many of them are rich. And they can ask people to contribute to their buying $60 million private jets. Have you heard about that recently, by the way? Jesse Duplantis, God told him that he did not want him to fly in his old private jet. He surely didn't want him to fly commercial. I mean, flying coach is out of the question. But what would really honor God is for him to purchase a new $60 million jet. And he just needed all of the suckers out there to donate toward it. And I say this lovingly, but at the same time purposely. Anybody who contributes to people like that are suckers. And there's one born every day. Isn't that what Barnum said? One born every day? And it seems for everyone that's born in the world, they're too born every day into the church. And it's why people like him can live the way that they do. They are experts in greed. And they know what makes people pay. 
and they say it, and they preach it. Once more, I allude to the letter of Jude, and I will numerous times as we make our way forward. In Jude 16, it says, These, talking about these false prophets, are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. That's a parallel phrase to the one we've seen in verse 3. They exploit people with false words. So reason number three, we can't trust all preachers because of why some of them preach. We can trust God, but we can't trust all those who talk about God or speak in the name of God. We can't trust all preachers. We can trust all of the Bible, but we can't trust all preachers. And these first three verses of Second Peter 2 show us why. Why we can't trust all preachers. We can't trust all preachers because of what some of them preach. We can't trust all preachers because of how some of them live. We can't trust all preachers because of why some of them preach. That's disappointing, isn't it? That we can't trust all preachers. I said that last week. I'd love for you to be able to trust all of us. I would love to be able to trust all of this group of which I'm a part. It's disappointing that we can't. What's more, it's despicable, isn't it? That there would be men, or in some cases women, who under the name of God preach these things, live this way, Preach for these reasons. If anything should make us angry, this should make us angry. I'm talking about with righteous anger, with righteous indignation. I'm guessing that for many of us, considering this, or thinking about this, or or seeing this from time to time makes us ask a question like, Lord, why do you allow this to go on? Why don't you do something about this? Or maybe the question, Lord, how long until your judgment falls on people like this, on false preachers? Well, this is where we transition into the next passage in Second Peter And therefore, where we transition into the next message, the judgment of false preachers. And we see the transition in the last part of verse 3, so I want you to look there with me once again. Speaking of these false prophets that have been described for us in the first two and a half verses of 2 Peter 2, it then says... Their condemnation, that is, their judgment, from long ago is not idle. 
just because they are present and just because they are prevalent does not mean that they are not under and will not undergo the judgment of God. It doesn't mean God is forgotten. It doesn't mean God is unaware. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care. From long ago, God has spoken that people like this will be judged. The time of that judgment simply hasn't come The end of that sentence, the end of that verse says, and their destruction, a synonym for condemnation or judgment, it it elaborates on what their judgment will be like, a judgment of destruction. Their destruction is not asleep. It may look like it's asleep. It may look like they've gotten by, but they have not. And with that last sentence in verse 3, we transition into this next passage, this next message, the judgment of false preachers. From 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. If you've been here and were paying attention, maybe you remember that the passage that we've been in, has already mentioned the judgment of false preachers even before the end of verse 3. Go back to verse 1 there in Second Peter 2. It says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift... Destruction. When we covered verse 1, I told you that we see there that these false preachers will reap what they've sown. The word is the same. It says that they basically have sown destruction, destructive heresies, and then they will reap destruction under the judgment of God. The presence of these false preachers, again, makes us wonder sometimes why God doesn't do something. The prevalence of them makes us wonder when God is going to do something. But I would remind you of that transitional sentence there at the end of verse 3. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. There will be a, a judgment false preachers. And then what Peter does in the passage is he provides us with a guarantee of the judgment of false preachers, proof of the judgment of false preachers. And the guarantee that he offers, the proof that he offers, is God's prior acts of judgment. He brings up three of them in verses 4 through 10. So let's read that part of the passage. And as we're reading, you see if you can pick out the three historical acts of God's judgment that provide a guarantee that God will judge these false preachers. Verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. 
And if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Now, from this passage, I'm going to show you three reasons for us to believe in the judgment of false preachers. We can't believe them, but we can believe in their judgment. And the reason we can believe in their judgment is because if we've already seen at the end of chapter 1, we can believe the Bible. We can believe God's Word, which is spoken here and elsewhere about their judgment. Reason number one. We can believe in the judgment of false preachers because of God's judgment of the angels. That's the first historical act of God's judgment that Peter brings up here as a guarantee or proof of the judgment of these false preachers. We can believe in the judgment of false preachers because of God's judgment of the angels. Peter references that in verse 4. I'm going to read the end of verse 3 so it, it makes sense to you how it fits together. Speaking of these false prophets, it says their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Then go down to verse 9. This is how we should think about it in our minds. If he did that, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. You see what Peter is doing there? He's saying to those who would question whether God is going to judge these false preachers, proof number one is God's judgment of the angels. Verse 4 spoke about God judging them when they sinned, casting them into hell. The word that he uses here is actually the Greek word for the underworld. It's the only time that it's used in Scripture. And it's saying God, because of the sin of certain angels, has placed them there or restricted them or limited them, punished them in this way. 
committing them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the final day of judgment. Peter's saying, if God did that, we can be certain that He knows how to keep the unrighteous of this day, in this context, the false preachers, under judgment until the day a final judgment comes. And especially, this is the case for those who, like these false prophets, live according to their lust and despise the authority of Christ Jesus Himself. God's judgment of the angels here, I believe, is a reference to Genesis chapter 6. We've talked about that not so long ago because it came up in our study of 1 Peter when we got to chapter 3, and I'll show you that passage again in just a moment. But for now, think back to Genesis 6. At the beginning of the chapter is where we read that the sons of God, which for the most part, almost exclusively in the New Old Testament is a reference to angels, the sons of God had relations with the daughters of men. And from this immoral union, the result was an increase in sinfulness in the world that ultimately led to the flood that's recorded in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. Well, I mentioned just a moment ago that as we were making our way some months ago through 1 Peter, in chapter 3, verse 18, this came up. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey in the days of Noah. And I told you then that I thought that this was a reference to what Genesis 6 records, and then what Second Peter chapter 2 brings up, and then what the book of Jude brings up as well. So let's flip again to the next to the last book of the Bible, the book of Jude. And there we read in verse 4, which is very parallel to our passage in 2 Peter 2 today, talking about false prophets. It says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation or judgment, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Does that sound familiar? Well, yeah, it does. It's just like what we've been reading in Second Peter 2. Well, in verse 5, Jude then, like Peter, begins to talk about their judgment. Because people were no different. These that he was writing to, questioning, how could God let this go on? When will God punish this? So Jude writes, now I want to remind you, that although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward also destroyed those who did not believe. What's he doing? The same thing Peter's doing in Second Peter 2, right? He's answering the questions of those who may doubt that God would judge false prophets by pointing to how God has judged in the past. 
And the first example Jude brings up is God's judgment of the nation of Israel when they sinned in between Egypt and the land of Canaan. But then in verse 6, he refers to the same act of judgment that Peter has. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And then the end of verse 7 says, These, or that act of judgment, those acts of judgment, serve as an example, or a guarantee, or a proof, or a sign. They serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. These historical acts of judgment give us a preview of how God is going to deal with false preachers in the future at the final judgment. That's why the beginning of Jude 11 says about them, Woe to them. Woe is a strong word. It's an announcement of impending doom and destruction. Woe to these false preachers. Reason number one, we can believe in the judgment of false preachers because of God's judgment of the angels. You're tracking with Peter? If God judged those angels who sinned in the past, God will judge false preachers in the future. Reason number two, we can believe in the judgment of false preachers because of God's judgment in the flood of the world. We can believe in the judgment of false preachers because of God's judgment in the flood of the world. This is the second historical act of judgment that Peter is going to point to, or Peter points to as a guarantee or a proof that he will judge false preachers in the future. Look at verse 5. And if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if he did that, now look down to verse 9, so we can see how it fits together in our mind, should, if he did that, then the Lord certainly knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So the second historical act of judgment that Peter brings up that guarantees that God will judge these false prophets is the judgment of the flood. That's recorded for us in Genesis 6 through 9. You familiar with it? It's not a pretty scene, is it? God, so disturbed by the sinfulness of mankind, it set about them there. God set about them there. Every thought that they had was wickedness. 
thinking up ways to, to sin, to invent sin, violent and sexual immoral these people were. So God judged the entire world. He killed off everyone and everything. With the exception of Noah and his family. And pairs of all the animals. God's judgment in the flood is a sure sign that God doesn't mind judging. It's a sure guarantee that when God says that He will judge or condemn or punish, He will actually do those things and follow through on them. It's a sign then that these false preachers who have always existed will one day be judged by God in a manner likened to which God judged the world in the flood and in a manner likened to God judged the angels when they sinned. But not only is the judgment of the flood a sign of the judgment of false preachers, it's also a sign of the final judgment of all of those who aren't God's people. Did you pick up on that in the passage as we read? Not only is he talking about here how God's going to judge these false preachers, but he's expanding that, and he said it serves basically as a sign of how God will judge all of those who aren't his people. I'm talking about all of those who are unrepentant, who will not turn from their sins and trust on Christ for salvation. A sign of how God will finally judge all unforgiven sinners. Well, this isn't the only place that Peter brings up the flood as a sign of God's final judgment. Flip over to chapter 3. Now, I'm not going to preach it. I'll do that in the future. But for a second time now, making our way through Second Peter, I want to read this passage because it provides us some some insight into the heresies that Peter was facing and addressing as he wrote what he's writing here in chapter 2. So Peter begins chapter 3 by saying, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through the apostles. And from what we read after this, I, I think the particular command that he's talking about is the command of Christ that he would come again and that we should be ready for when he comes, there will be judgment. Verse 3 says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, where is the promise of His coming? You see the connection there? The idea is that if people don't believe Jesus is coming again and therefore He won't judge, then why would they live the way the Bible commands us to live? So like we can live the way that we want to. Because Christ isn't coming, and therefore He won't judge. So they will say, he says in verse 4, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But then Peter addresses their rejection 
and their objection to the second coming and the judgment of Christ. And he's going to do it in the same way that he's doing in, cha- or doing in chapter 2. He's going to say, here's a sure sign that God's going to judge all unbelievers. Verse 5, for they, those who scoff, deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, that is, water, the world that then existed was deluged or destroyed with water and perished. All of it, everyone, everything, with few exceptions. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, a future judgment, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And then down in verse 10, it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in much the same way that the flood came, like a thief, unannounced, unexpected. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Well, how there in chapter 3 has Peter provided a guarantee of this future judgment? What did he do? Points back to the flood, right? Jesus did the same thing in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24 verse 36, Jesus said concerning that day and hour, the day and hour of His coming, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. How was it in the days of Noah? Did the people of the world expect a flood? Were they anticipating a flood? Were they preparing for a flood? No, if they were, they would have helped Noah build the ark. And if they were, they would have certainly got on the ark. But they didn't believe any of it. And therefore, they weren't prepared for any of it. That's why Jesus said, As it was in those days, so it will be in the days when I come again. People not expecting it, not prepared, not looking for it, not believing in it. Verse 38, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So the flood is a sign of the final judgment of all, including false preachers. So reason number two once more is we can believe in the judgment of false preachers because of God's judgment in the flood of the world. Now that brings us to the third and final reason, reason number three. We can believe in the judgment of false preachers because of God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the third historical act of judgment that Peter brings up to prove that false preachers will be judged. Look back to verse 6 in 2 Peter 2. 
It says, And if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, when He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Skip down to verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Peter says, I'll give you one other act of judgment in the past that proves that God will judge false preachers in the in the future, that they're not getting away with it. Sodom and Gomorrah. Are you familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? It's just as hard and just as hard to read as the story of the the flood. Nothing pretty about it at all. That story is recorded for us in Genesis 18 and 19. God had announced His judgment on these cities. But they would not believe and therefore they did not repent. And with fire and burning sulfur from the heavens... God made it an ash heap, completely destroying it and everyone and everything in it. So Peter is saying here, if you wonder why God won't judge false preachers, and why God isn't judging false preachers, if you wonder if God is going to do it at all, just look back to Sodom and Gomorrah. In God's time, judgment comes. Sodom and Gomorrah didn't become the way it was in a day. They had lived that way for a long period of time, but then a time of judgment came. The world before the days of the flood didn't get that way in a day. There was sin that was increasing over time, but then a time came where God announced His judgment. The angels must have persisted in their sin for some time, surely much more than one day. But then a time came where God judged them. And all of these judgments of God point to the reality of God's future judgment of these false preachers that Peter's been talking about. Once more, I go to the book of Jude, verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation or judgment. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And then skipping down to verse 7, like Peter, Jude uses the example of Sodom and Gomorrah to prove the judgment of these false prophets. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Based on that, 
Once more, that's why Jude could write a few verses later at the beginning of verse 11, Woe to them! And again, we see that this prior judgment of God is not only a guarantee and a proof of the final judgment of false preachers, but it's also a sign of the final judgment of all the ungodly. Look to verse 6 again. Making them, that is Sodom and Gomorrah, an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Not just to the false preachers, but to all of the ungodly. One more look at Jude. Verses 14 and 15 there says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners has spoken against him. We can believe in the judgment of false preachers because of God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what's more, we can believe in the second coming and the subsequent judgment, period. Do you see that this is the second time that Peter brings this up? Not just the judgment of false preachers, but the judgment of all the ungodly. You see now that's the second time. He said the flood served as an example of final judgment of all, and Sodom and Gomorrah served as an example of the final judgment of all. When that begins to weigh on our minds, I'm convinced that it will lead us to asking questions like this. Will any escape? We've got to have a hard heart if one of the questions we aren't thinking in our own mind is upon reading all of this. Will I escape? Or maybe it's a question like this, how can one escape? More personally, how can I escape? I've been looking forward to this last part of the message the whole time. Because contrary to what some of you might think, I don't like preaching the judgment stuff. I like movies that have a happy ending. I'm not as complex as some people that like those movies that end in an enigma or with the bad guys winning. I'm so pleased to be able to point out to you again verse 5. Which, though it speaks about the judgment of God, also speaks about something else, doesn't it? If God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, 
when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. You see, when we ask questions like, will any escape? How can one escape? You look to verse 5 and you say, yes, some will escape. Because God preserved Noah and his family. Eight in total. And I'm so pleased to be able to point out to you again verses 6 through 8. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. But while He did that, verse 7, and if He also rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So when we ask the question, will anyone escape the judgment of God? How can one escape the judgment of God? It's good news to be able to say that God rescued Lot too. And then I'm so pleased to be able to point out to you once more the beginning of verse 9. If the Lord did these things, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He knows how to preserve His people and keep them from falling away from the faith. That's how He preserves us, through faith. You see, with every guarantee and proof of God's judgment, there's also a guarantee and a proof of God's salvation. You Wednesday nighters, do y'all remember a few Wednesday nights ago when we were making our way through some of the Old Testament books and I was asking you for where we see in these particular books the big storyline of Scripture like sin and redemption? And we made the point that night that if you're, if you found a place where there's judgment of sin, typically you're going to find a place where there's salvation of sinners too. They go together throughout the Scripture. Again, with every guarantee of God's judgment, there's a guarantee of His salvation, even and even especially for a persecuted minority like Noah, like Lot, like the Peter to whom Peter was writing, and like believers in the world today that are certainly a minority in many cases persecuted. And if you're asking that question, how can I escape I would tell you that you can escape in the same way that Noah and Lot and those that Peter was writing to and countless others down through the years have escaped. And in the same way that many are escaping and being preserved today, that is through repentance, through turning from your sin and trusting on the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. Jesus is Lord and Savior. He has lived a perfect life that satisfies the demands of God. He has died on the cross to take the punishment for sins and sinners. He's risen from the grave to conquer death. And He will forgive you for all of your sins and give you eternal life. He will preserve you and spare you from the judgment of God if you will repent and believe on Him. But... God will not spare anyone who rejects so great a salvation. Think of these examples today. He will judge everyone 
who rejects that. And that's especially true of those who distort Him and deny Him and distort the gospel of His salvation and deny it. So we can believe in the judgment of false preachers. Would you stand with me and bow your heads and close your eyes?